Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Good morning and welcome to another edition of The Way of Vanilla. Thank you so much for folks who have continued to rock with and listen to The Way. We are the way we are because in part of you, the listeners and supporters. So thank you so much. Coming up next is the first of two conversations that I had with some of the amazing staff from Rewire.News. Rewire is an amazing outlet. Um, they do great work and have wonderful journalists and people who are really engaging with issues and commentary on a host of topics across the spectrum. And I really appreciate the opportunity to first talk with Tina Vasquez and Jody Jacobson. We dive into some of the immigration issues that we've been grappling with the past few weeks, as well as the pending legislation now posed in the House and looking at what family detention is, how it operates and what it has been historically. Um, in this country. And so I'm turning it over to our conversation. Listen to Tina and Jody. They have some really great perspective and understanding of the issues and kind of coming to terms with where we are right now. Peace. This is a really exciting opportunity for me. I, you guys might, if you follow my Twitter feed, you'll know that I share posts, quite a bit of articles from rewire.news. If you don't already follow subscribe or otherwise support rewire.news please 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 go do so this is an amazing outlet that does a lot of really great work um my last interview with someone from rewire was uh uh you know angry black lady um imani gandhi and we had a really great conversation before that i talked to a wonderful team of folks around the um, issue of abortion. Rewire has done amazing work in dealing with reproductive justice and abortion rights and other amazing issues. Um, but today we're going to talk about the latest that has really grabbed the nation's attention regarding immigration and specifically family separation and the treatment of undocumented immigrants um, coming across the border, those seeking asylum, etc. And I'm really excited to be joined by two amazing individuals <laughs> from Rewire. Um, again, I I do fangirl a little bit when I do get to talk to folks from Outlet because they really are, you know, great people um, who are doing really good work and getting really great, concrete, clear, easy to understand information out there about policy issues and, and legal issues that matter. So I am joined by Tina Vasquez and Jody Jacobson. And I'll let you guys both introduce yourselves, starting with Jody and then Tina, and then we'll get into our conversation. Um, I'm Jody, and I'm the president and editor in chief of Rewired.News. Hi, I'm Tina Vasquez. I'm a senior reporter covering immigration at Rewired.News. Great. Thank you guys again so much for joining me, and thank you for the amazing coverage again about this topic in general. Um, I thought I knew quite a bit, but then reading through some of the articles, before we were talking, I was like, wow, there's so much more to this. So I'll start with you, Tina. Can you just kind of just, even though folks have been following along with the news about family separation, can you kind of put this current moment 
in context for us, what exactly, what exactly are we looking at? Like, where are we right now versus where we possibly have been with this issue? Sure. Um, I mean, the way that I talk about family separation is that it's sort of a natural byproduct of the immigration system. Families are routinely separated through detention and deportation. Um, but Trump's zero tolerance policy is something very different where you have a policy in place at the border that was separating um, children from their parents who were asylum seekers. And it, it was sort of like to deter them um, from migrating to the U.S. and seeking asylum. Um, it was obviously meant as punishment. Um, so while family separation has been happening for a long time and it's sort of inherent in the immigration system, the policy taking place at the border that recently ended because of the executive order um, was very, very different. And so with the executive order, there is still a zero tolerance policy in place at the border, which means that asylum seekers will continue to be prosecuted and detained. Um, but now they're ending the practice of separating families, and instead they're going to funnel them into family detention, and we're going to see a drastic expansion of that system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in, in thinking about family detention, right, because a lot of people cheered like, wow, okay, families aren't going to be separated anymore. Now we see this, we, now what we see is family detention it's, it's great that children are not being ripped away from their families, but we're still having families being detained potentially for long periods of time. I know I've seen that the standard supposedly is 20 days, but from reading, you know, an, an older article about Burke's Detention Center, it seems like that actually, um, in reality, is much longer than, than 20. And in 20 days, let's just be real, everyone, 20 days is too long to, to have families and children detained in various conditions. Um, but it seems like it's actually a longer period. What are what are some of the issues and concerns with family detention uh, generally, as well as having children and their families be detained? Yeah, I, mean, I think to understand family detention, you have to have sort of uh, an understanding of the Flores settlement. So, I mean, what people may not realize is that the Department of Homeland Security, um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, those are relatively new things that were sort of developed in the wake of 9-11. So prior to 2003, or 2003, I'm sorry, there was Immigration and Naturalization Services. So children have been migrating alone, and Central Americans have been migrating seeking asylum to the United States since the 1980s because of various um, civil wars and armed conflicts in Central America. And so because of that, um, there was sort of no precedent prior to the 80s for detaining children. So they're called unaccompanied immigrant minors. They were migrating to the United States and they were detaining them. And um, it became clear that there were no standards in place for how long they could be detained, for the standards for, for which should be complied to detain children. So there was like a, there was a lawsuit um, on behalf of these children because they were basically being abused in the immigration system. Um, and that was filed in the 80s, but it wasn't settled until 1997. And so that's kind of what the Flores settlement is. And like at the very, ba it's very, very basic. Um, I know that we're seeing images of children who get to play and have school and all of these other lovely things. But Flores basically says that you have to detain children in the least restrictive settings possible, and you mm -hmm. have to release them to parents and family members as quickly as possible. So that was the basic understanding before family detention. So keep in mind that initially in 1997, Flores only applied to unaccompanied immigrant minors. So 
enter the Obama administration, which begins the process of family detention, which is detaining parents and children together in prison. And so there were court battles that emerged from that because there was no understanding as to whether or not Flores applied to children who were detained alongside their parents. It was decided that it did. And so that's where the 20 days came from. Like, so, so now it's, you know, the least restrictive settings possible. You have to reunite them if they're alone. But then when they're detained with their parents, they shouldn't be detained for longer than 20 days. And what's tricky about Flores in the context of the Trump administration is you see the Trump administration making a pretty unprecedented attack on Flores, which is to say they are basically trying to detain families indefinitely, um, which is very different than what Flores has set forth for, you know, 20 or so years. Um, but then the other thing to keep in mind is, is that Flores has never really been followed by family detention centers. Mm-hmm. Currently, there are three. Um, the reason why there was a hunger strike at Burke's a couple of years ago is because Jay Johnson, who was then head of DHS under Obama, said that typically families aren't detained longer than 20 days. And at Berks County, um, which is itself like a really interesting family detention center, because right now it's basically operating without a license. So that's the other thing about Florence is that, or I'm sorry, Flores, is that you have to have, you have to have the facility license to detain children. And Burks has operated without a license in this weird legal gray area for a couple of years. And Mm -hmm. the families there have been detained routinely much longer than 20 days, months, and in some cases years. Um, And so while like Flores is being attacked, there's also this tricky part where Flores has really never been respected. Um, Children get abused in family detention centers. The standards of care are already very low and they're not being released within 20 days. I think there's also a few other things to keep in mind. For mm-hmm. one, family detention does not preclude separation depending on the path that parents are put on, you know, when and whether they are, in fact, um, in, prosecuted. And it may well, for example, when a parent then goes after the 20 days into prosecution, they go into a totally different channel than the children do. So it doesn't neither the executive order nor the process in place right now actually totally prevents kids from being separated. It's a matter of the timing. And when you look at what the effects on children are, never mind people in detention, but the effects of children on children, even if they're with their parents in a detention setting, psychologically and physically are very traumatizing. We're talking literally about putting kids in prison. And, you know, as Tina already said, the the conditions in many of these places are not good at all. And once, um, as the administration is proposing and is moving toward, uh, once these people arrive at and are put on military bases, there will be no access to them by the press or by anyone else. And there's no access now. Even lawmakers can't get access to the kids to check them out. They're having tremendous trouble. You've probably seen that reporting. So there's a total lack of accountability about what's happening with the kids, who's taking care of the kids, under what condition they're being taken care of. And then putting families in detention really isn't the answer, you know, Mm -hmm. to keep them together. And most immigration experts and people on the ground will tell you you know, the right place for people to be is in communities where right. they had prior to this been as part of that community while they awaited 
their hearings and their sentencing. And it, it, it's very difficult once you put people in detention to get them adequate legal representation. Um, it, it just makes everything much more difficult when it's already difficult. And I think the psychological and traumatic aspects of this, which are intentional, can't be discounted, no matter if you're keeping the, the families together or not. So this this sort of notion that the executive order fixes things, it doesn't fix things. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I appreciate the additional context, and thank you both for 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 for, for that you know uh, background and information. When we're when we're as part of this, when when all this was first really coming to light, right? There first was the concern about the missing children, and it got convoluted somewhat in this conversation about you know family separation and the border detention. Um, just thinking about where we are right now. Well, I mean, where we have been for the last 15 years, you know, with with attempts with GOP trying to pass, you know, very restrictive immigration policy. Um, uh, 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 Jody, you had a piece basically about some of the, the legal, not legal, but the legislative efforts um, that that are being introduced now, but they have some um, they're, they're old. Some of them are old policies that Republicans have been trying to push and get through for a while. Uh, can you just talk through some of the things that are on the table potentially in the House, um, you know, and, and, and what we're looking at in terms of limits on legal immigration potentially here in the U.S.? Yeah, so there were two bills in the House, and one of the bills, both of the bills come out of a long tradition of anti-immigrant groups that have been active and more or less on the fringes. Um, since the 80s and 90s. They are anti-immigrant, um, anti, you know, they really are racist at their core. These are groups that I'm very familiar with because I used to work internationally on demographics and population issues. Okay. And these groups have been around for a very long time, and they've had the same kinds of positions for all that time. But they were always on the fringes of the GOP. But now they've become more to the center of where the GOP is. And they've got, obviously, um, friends in the administration in the form of Stephen Miller and, and Trump and others in the administration, Jeff Sessions, of course, and others. And so they have effectively taken over the writing of this legislation. And there were two bills in the House. People were calling one of them, you know, the more extreme and the other one, the more compromise bill. Neither one of them was really a compromise, unless you consider a compromise between the extreme right and the extreme stream right, a compromise. I always talk about what is it, what is it for the people affected, not, you know, some group of legislators. Both of the bills would have dramatically curtailed, um, uh, future immigration to the United States, making it narrower and whiter. In other words, they would dramatically reduce the number of visas afforded to people and the number of different countries to which they went. Um, and also they would have criminalized the undocumented migrants in the United States. And my, you know, my, my thought, I, and I believe this is, you know, fairly, I think it's fairly obvious. The reason that there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of money going into building um, facilities on military bases right now and in other areas of the country is because I believe the plan is to criminalize the, you know, the uh, undocumented people in this country and then, in fact, do mass deportation, which is what 
um, Trump has said from the beginning, and I'm of the mind that when someone tells you who they are, you believe Mm -hmm. them. Um, And so now what's happened is um, there's another bill being formulated in the House um, among the Republicans, the Democrats are not involved at all, um, which will come out this week ostensibly. Um, I haven't seen a draft copy yet, but I don't think a draft copy is even available. They're not sharing it with anyone. They didn't share it with the Democrats before. But, you know, again, we're talking about machinations of the extreme right and the extreme stream right. So I don't believe I think what we have to look for in those bills is the exact same thing. A lot of money for an unnecessary border wall, the criminalization of undocumented immigrants in this country, lots of money for um, private uh, contracts for detention centers and for military bases and um you know, all sorts of other things that are happening, including the reduction of visas. And so I don't, I don't think, um, I don't think that bill can pass the Senate. So I'm not terribly worried about it becoming law right now. I do think, however, that from the perspective of what happens in politics, when you have one side it's kind of like a tug of war with a rope and you have one side pulling harder and harder and harder and mm-hmm. the other side keeps going toward that end. My greatest concern is that the Democrats are falling into a trap of, for example, talking about family separation, but not talking about why family detention is bad, talking about you know, border security, but not underscoring the fact that we don't have an immigration crisis. So my concern is that with the drafting of these very um, radical bills, the um, the people we would depend upon to be um, fact-based and justice-based are going to be pulled further toward that end out of their own political interests. And so while I'm not so worried about it passing the Senate, I am worried about where we're going with the debate. As someone said yesterday, you know, we should be talking about how do we ensure that immigrants to this country have what they need to prosper and become part of their communities. Instead, we're talking about how fast we can deport them. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and just to add to ahead. that, um, I, I'm not as familiar with the bills that Jody covered, as Jody is, obviously, but from my basic understanding of them, they read very much like um, the Reforming American Immigration for a Strong Economy Act or the RAISE Act, which Trump supported and advocated for last year. Okay. Um, there are groups like the Black Alliance for Just Immigration um, that called it one of the most disgusting attacks on black immigrants to date. They called it inherently racist, and it's because the primary way that black immigrants migrate to the United States lawfully is through um, – what the Trump administration has called chain migration, but is really just family reunification or sponsoring your family members that are out of the country. And so um, what you see with a lot of the bills that are coming from Republicans is to end what they call chain migration, which is really just ending the way primarily black immigrants have always come to the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For, for taking all this information, right, because, because a lot of folks are obviously, you know, from a lot of the outrage and outpouring and stuff, and, and it is outrageous, you know, not to minimize a little of that, but I appreciate um, the one piece that I read uh, 
Latino, uh, the title is the U.S. has a long history of helping to disappear Central Americans, right? And, mm-hmm. and in it, you also talk about the U.S. has a long history, period, of separating families. And, and, and you know, understanding and recognizing the historical context within which this moment that we're in is happening or has been happening over the last um, few decades minimum in this context. And, you know, you go back to Japanese internment, you know, separation of um, uh, of indigenous families, um, go back to slavery, right? Like there's really something that runs an undercurrent in the way that the U.S. policy has been implemented and executed when it talks about um, families of marginalized people, whether they're coming from outside of the country or they're, you know, the other that exists already in the country. Can you just talk a little bit about kind of why we're in this crisis moment now? Like what is happening that families are are fleeing and risking, you know, the arduous journey already to get here, coming from Central America in particular, that we're now at this point where we've had the Obama administration, it seemed, to take a stance that was looking to aggressively deter um, migrants from coming here. And now we have the Trump administration taking whatever might have been done before and turning it on its head um, and doing, you know, escalating uh, uh, uh policy and action against people. I mean, we just saw the removal of domestic violence and gang violence as a reason for seeking asylum. Um, and and just can you just talk a little through like the challenges and issues that this, you know, raises? I mean, it, it's a very long cycle and as a lot of Native American women and black women have pointed out, um, you know, it, it's very irksome to hear how how are we doing this as a country? How can we do this? I mean, this is what we have done. You know, we have separated um, people of color from their children. <laughs> that's that's historical. That's a part of our history. Um, but it, as it relates to Central Americans, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Central Americans have been migrating to the U.S. as asylum seekers since the 1980s. That's why we saw um, the sanctuary movement sort of emerge in churches in the 1980s, because they migrated here and they were being targeted for deportation and they could be deported to their deaths. And so they sought asylum in churches. And, and that's still something that happens today. Last week, I believe two people entered um, sanctuary in churches. And so the United States has a very long history of destabilizing countries in Central America, like Honduras and El Salvador, um, you know, funneling money and resources to dictators and funding death squads. Um, so we work to destabilize countries those people essentially experience a forced migration where their own country becomes inhospitable because of what emerges as a result of U.S. foreign policy. They migrate to the United States as asylum seekers, and they are criminalized for escaping the conditions that we in part created. Um, So it's like this entire system in place. And Sessions, um, you know, I, I think of all the really disgusting attacks that we've seen on immigrant communities. I think Sessions recently um, sort of ending protections for asylum seekers that experience domestic violence and gang violence um, was maybe one of the most harmful yet because that will directly result in more people dying. Um, that That is the primary reason why women in particular migrate to the United States from Central America. Um, women experience a bulk of the gang violence in Central America that takes shape as gender-based violence, um, including rape. And so um, those women no longer have a reason, according to Sessions, to seek asylum in the United States. Um, so it's, it's part of a long, long cycle. 
in which um, the United States is really a historical. Like, it's not like, why are all these Central Americans coming to the United States? This has been happening since the 1980s. And now, you know, there are even talks of MS-13 and the way that Sessions talks about MS-13 as if it was born in Central America and it's spreading to the United States mm-hmm. and it's harming Americans. Um, the reason why MS-13 spread in part, um, first of all, that gang was formed in Los Angeles and it became a transnational gang in part because of U.S. deportation policies. So we deported um, Salvadorans and the gang spread. And now people are also fleeing that kind of gang violence. So people from Honduras and El Salvador, for example, which have some of the highest homicide rates in the world, are fleeing the violence that was also spread in part because of U.S. foreign policy. And now they have no protections. Um, Now we're actually choosing to prosecute them under the Trump administration. Um, But I also want to point out that we've never been great to asylum seekers. I mean, the way that the Obama administration decided to handle Um, parents and children seeking asylum, fleeing violence in their countries of origin, was to imprison them together, sometimes indefinitely. Um, The Obama administration in particular fought to detain children for longer at places like Burke's. Um, So this is just part of a really long, harmful history. And when I do my reporting, I think that context is very, very important because, um, like, the story is beginning when people get to the U.S. Right. Like that's when the immigration reporting starts for a lot of outlets and a lot of reporters. But there's a lot of context as to why people are fleeing Um, and not just fleeing, you know, like this applies to people who identify as economic refugees as well. Um, We don't think of Mexican immigrants in the same terms. They don't get to claim asylum. They don't experience a lot of the protections that have historically existed for people from other countries, for example. But um, in that context, also, we don't consider NAFTA and how that was, in, in a way, a forced migration. If people mm-hmm. can't feed their families, you know, they come to the United States to do the best they can. And so I think providing that historical context is really, really important that we, we, we just don't pretend that a person's story begins when they get to the U.S. We must take into account the U.S.'s role in why people migrate. I totally agree with Tina. I, but I think also there's there are other contexts to consider as well. One is, well, one is a fact issue, which is that despite all the panic right now, we're seeing record low migration to the United States from Central America and elsewhere. So the first thing is that mm-hmm. the panic is, is not based in any fact whatsoever. Secondly, the United States government right now is breaking our own laws by not affording people who come here asylum hearings to which they're guaranteed. And now Trump would like to have all due process just wiped away. And I think third, in a much bigger context, you know, this has to do more broadly with people of color. Jeff Sessions is wiping away all of the protections put in place to reduce, um, you know, imprisonment of, people of color for misdemeanor crimes or for, you know, minor offenses, for example. There was a lot of work done to reduce um, to reduce incarceration rates over the past eight years. He's wiping away all of that. That's another way of feeding a prison system that is based on profits and marginalizing and further criminalizing people of color. We take away children from women who are suffering from addiction, even though evidence shows that's pretty much 
the worst thing you can do. Instead, you should be providing treatment and resources and keeping children together as much as you possibly can. I mean, not in situations where the child is endangered, but obviously in situations where if you're offering the mom treatment, but we take away children from moms who are struggling with addiction instead of giving them treatment, we criminalize them. So this is a much broader context of how we treat people of color in this country and low-income people don't give them the resources they need to succeed and instead criminalize them. Um, and, you know, just now a story came across that a private prison um, uh, uh, company has decided to hold its annual meeting at Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that's an accident. So I think that um, these kinds of things are part of a web of what's happening at a broader level of really racist policies, um, whether they pertain to immigrants, whether they pertain to people of color, whether they pertain to women of color and reproduction at the broadest level, we are criminalizing people in order to sustain and increase a prison industrial complex that is growing under this administration. It's not like it hasn't existed before. And there are many Democrats that have taken money from these um, private prison groups. But there there are many companies now, tech companies, which are profiting off of um, tracking immigrants and helping DHS track immigrants. There are um, a range of different companies uh, 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 that are implicit and complicit in this whole effort. So I think we also have to look at who's making money off the pain of people who are being criminalized and incarcerated, whether they are immigrants or um, actual residents of the United States, you know, legal residents of the United States. Right, right. No, and I appreciate the context both of you, thank you, that you have have put in this conversation, um, because there's often this tendency to compartmentalize issues and and definitely absolutely focus on the issues that you know come up but but i appreciate jody the way you just tied that all in about and and tina definitely for responding to my question about the historical you know nature of what is happening like this is all a part of unfortunately a vicious cycle that exists within our existing system of criminalization predominantly you know targeted towards people of color um that 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 has you know indiscriminately destroyed families, you know, criminalize those seeking uh, assistance and opportunity providing, you know, criminalization instances like you talked about, you know, when people could benefit from um, um, counseling or drug, you know, drug, drug treatment or something to that nature. And, and I really am, I think, heartened to see some of the conversations starting to shift to looking at this as a part of a broader context, besides looking at this as one specific solo you know, siloed issue of just family. Like, again, that's a horrible issue. We definitely need to address and deal with what's coming now. But the context you all are providing, as well as um, just from, again, just even, you know, the more I'm looking at the call, for example, to abolish ICE, and I don't think how many Americans realize that we no longer have an INS. We have an ICE. And there's a very different attitude and approach towards immigration. Not that America has always been nice or anything before now, but but we have post 9/11 a different emerging um, um, viewpoint and attitude towards towards immigrants 
but that's also reflective in the way criminal justice has existed and criminal injustice has been, you know, proceeding uh, over the last few decades in this country as well. So, um, I don't know. Do you guys have any final thoughts before we close out this conversation? Because I'm really, uh, again, thankful that you took time this morning to, to, to speak with me. Well, th- thank you. I mean, the only... Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I, I was just going to say, um, the, the one thing that I really sort of want to hammer home for people interested um, in doing immigration work or... Um, volunteering or organizing or any of those things is is to look at the immigration system broadly and not necessarily tie their understandings of the immigration system to the Trump administration, because Mm -hmm. there have been really unprecedented attacks under the Trump administration, but so, so much of what we're seeing under the Trump administration was made possible by previous administrations, including Clinton, including Obama. Like, Like I very much see immigration and the framework, the inhumane framework of the immigration system is completely nonpartisan. And so um, I just want people to sort of broaden their understanding of how family separation has played out historically, how it has always been a byproduct of the immigration system, of the detention system, of the deportation system, and to sort of do the legwork, um, develop these broader understandings. Because you'll see that if Trump should not be reelected, a lot of these problems will continue to exist, um, and they've sort of, they, they've been harmful to immigrant communities um, for, for many years, even prior to the creation of DHS. And so um, just taking a closer look at, at how these systems interplay, and as Jody said, sort of in the broader context also, in terms of criminalization, I mean, there's something called crimigation, um, the most easy way for an undocumented immigrant to get funneled into the deportation system is through the criminal justice system. And so um, also holding local officials accountable for the policies that are in place when it comes to the criminal justice system locally, um, at a state level, federally, um, because these things are all interconnected. And that's often how you see immigrant communities getting funneled into deportation is Mm -hmm. because there was a traffic stop, because there was a ticket, because there was some interaction with the police officer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Jody. Any final thoughts? Yeah, the only thing I wanted to say is, is, you know, I think at a broader level, we have to understand, while, while I agree with Tina that this is a product of many years, in this moment, we're in an extraordinarily dangerous moment because we have the opportunity, I would say Trump in many ways gave us an opportunity to really dig dip, deep into our history and to the problems that we face and to really confront what democracy means, that you can't just go and vote and decide you're done, um, that you've got to be a participant in your democracy. And, but right now, I think we're, we're facing a place where there is no level of accountability. And we can quickly go over the edge of having a level of accountability to some politicians to having no level of accountability whatsoever. Um, and I, and I, I really I understand the reluctance that people have in talking about um, ties to historical uh, precedent. But there's some things I've learned on the past couple of weeks that have really struck me. One is, and this is obviously very recent because the first lady wore that coat that said, I don't care to you, mm-hmm. um, that the, the, the phrase menefrego is an Italian phrase for I don't care or more 
um, more colloquially, I don't give a fuck. And that was a phrase used wide, used widely during uh, Mussolini's reign. And it was a phrase used by fascists. And apparently it's a phrase well recognized and a signal to fascists today across the world. So that to me was something that really struck me when I read that history. The other thing is that Mussolini used the term drain the swamp, which I also did not know. And, um, and I think we have to be really careful not to think that we are not in a tremendously dangerous moment because while one can see back to um, the threads of what's happening now, and I totally agree that there's a lot of responsibility I think that not focusing right now on what's, what has to happen to ensure that we have a democracy and that we do keep this um, administration accountable is critical to the future of democratic um, of a democratic state in the United States, however flawed it may be, and moving forward in that context. Because at this moment, I don't think we can afford to be nonpartisan at the meta level. Um, I just don't think we can. Great. I appreciate you both again for taking the time this morning. I appreciate those final thoughts and considerations. It's definitely something to think more about. I look forward to following up more with you all and others at Rewire doing this amazing work. You guys, if you're listening, definitely check out rewire.news. Um, amazing coverage on an analysis on many issues, but the coverage on immigration has been among the best. Thank you both again this, for the joining me this morning. Thanks Thank for having you. us. All right. Have a good day. Bye. You too.